This is a Fuente podcast. All right. We're starting up again now from chapter four. Um, there's one last thing that I want to add to from chapter three. In chapter three, we covered the um, serpent being shrewd and Adam and Eve being naked. Um, and if you look at the original Hebrew, there's an interesting pun that's going on. Hebrew word for naked is erom. Hebrew word for um, shrewd is arum. Okay. Um, let me explain something so that people can appreciate what's going on here. In Hebrew, you have a lemma. It's like a, a root that's three letters. And these two words share the same lemma. And that lemma is ayin resh mem. If you spell out um, both of these words, um, erom is ayin, uh, yod, resh, mem. If you look at arum, which is shrewd, it's ayin, resh, vav, mem. In that vav, there is a uh, shurek vav. It's a, it's a noun. So you basically have these same three letters. Um, and that kind of highlights a connection between uh, the snake's shrewdness and uh, humanity's nakedness. Um, all right, I'm going to just start reading. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Um. So you see here, humans are fulfilling uh, God's dictate for their life and that they're being fruitful and multiplying. You're saying that she's being an agent on God's behalf, exercising authority by naming her offspring. She says that it's with the help of the Lord that she brought forth of man. Um, she also gives birth to the second son, which is Abel. There's going to be a recurring theme that pops up in the Bible about this, um, you don't say tension with a first and second son or an importance that's placed on this second son. It's going to pop up later on with uh, Joseph and his brothers. Uh, it'll pop up with uh, Jacob and Esau. It's going to pop up with Ishmael and uh, uh, Isaac. Um and it starts at the very beginning. So if we actually, I'm going to look back at Genesis 1 for a second. You can see on day six that the first creation is all these creatures on the land. And then mankind is made secondly. After the second, then God said. And that kicks off this theme of like the second born having importance, despite everyone expecting importance to come from the first born. Um, something interesting to point out here is the name for Abel is the Hebrew word Havel, um, which means like smoke. And that's interesting because that's actually the same word that's used for meaninglessness in Ecclesiastes, or it's often translated vanity in the uh, King James. That's, uh, Het bet lamed, and it has two segels for its nouns. Um, I'm reading from my, uh, it's just called the Torah. 
a modern commentary, a union of American Hebrew congregations. Um, it's by W. Gunther Plot, yeah, Bernard J. Bamberger, and uh, William W. Hallow. I'm going to read here on the name of Abel. The name is not explained in the text. The Hebrew Hebel usually means breath or puff or vanity, as in Psalm 144.4. Man is like a breath, his days are a passing shadow. Or as in Job 7.16, my days are as a breath. You can see the uh, author is highlighting here the um, brevity with which we're going to be seeing Abel here. And it's kind of um, reminiscent of the names of the sons-in-law that um, Ruth's mother has in the book of Ruth. They both have names. I think one's like sickly and the other's like soon to die or something like that. Um, there's a lot of importance in these names and in, in Hebrew writing. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. We're going to pause here to read a note from Walton, Fruits of the Soil. There is intrinsically no problem with Cain bringing produce as a gift to God. The Hebrew word for his sacrifice, minha, is one that describes the kind of offering outlined in Leviticus 2, which is normally something other than an animal sacrifice. It was likewise common throughout the rest of the ancient world to offer food offerings from what was grown. Genesis does not record God asking for these sacrifices, though he approved of the practice as a means of expressing thanks. Gratitude would not be expressed when the gift is given grudgingly, as was possibly the case with Cain. See Hebrew 11.4, which contrasts Abel's sacrifice offered in faith with Cain's. So there's a lot of times in the Hebrew Bible, whenever there's just a space of silence somewhere, it's an invitation for you to think critically and try to figure out why something would be silent in that space. Um, and a lot of times you can have a really, really profound lesson pop out of those spaces of silence. I'm going to continue reading. Now I'm going to be switching to um, a translation by Robert Alter. Robert Alter is um, he was, uh, in the class of 1937, professor of Hebrew and comparative literature at the University of California, Berkeley. He's published many claim works on the Bible, literary modernism, and contemporary Hebrew literature, including the art of biblical narrative, the art of biblical poetry, and canon and creativity, modern writing, and the authority of scripture. He and his wife, Carol Cosman, live in Berkeley, California. And Abel, too, had brought from the choice firstlings of his flock, and the Lord regarded Abel and his offering, but he did not regard Cain and his offering. And Cain was very incensed, and his face fell. But the Lord said to Cain, Why are you incensed? Why is your face fallen? For whether you offer well or whether you do not, at the tent flap, sin crouches, and for you it is longing, but you will rule over it. Um, this is a very, very interesting line from God. It's written in the form of Hebrew poetry. Um, I'm going to read a little excerpt from uh, Walton here. 
Recent commentators have preferred seeing the participle crouching, Hebrew ribs, as a reference to a well-known Mesopotamian demon named Rabisu, who lingers around doorways. Sin is then portrayed as a doorway demon waiting for its victim to cross the threshold. From the old Babylonian period on in Mesopotamia, such demons were considered evil and were thought to ambush their victims. Um, at the very least, it's a personification of evil. And this, uh, whatever temptation is about to overcome Cain, it's sort of a self-reference back to the snake, if you're willing to be that creative and that literary with the way you're reading this. And it's also animalistic, too, the, the word crouching there. I think that same word is used in the Psalms when it's referring to lions waiting, uh, waiting lying in wait for their uh, victims. Okay, and Cain said to Abel, his brother, let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the soil. And so cursed shall you be by the soil that gaped with its mouth to take your brother's blood from your hand. If you till the soil, it will no longer give you its strength. A restless wanderer you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Um, looking at this right here, this, this segment from 9 to 12, I'm going to read here an excerpt from Alter. There are several verbal echoes of Adam's interrogation by God and Adam's curse, setting up a general biblical pattern in which history is seen as a cycle of approximate and significant recurrences. This is huge. So uh, you see someone presented with this opportunity to choose good and evil for themselves. They fail, and then God questions them on what they, why they chose what they did. Adam's being driven from the garden to till a landscape of thorn and thistle is replayed here, and God's insistence that Cain is cursed by the preposition also could mean of or from the soil, Adama. Adama is um, the word for soil, and it's very close to the name Adam. Adam. That had hitherto yielded its bounty to him. The biblical imagination is equally preoccupied with the term of exile, this is already the second expulsion, and with the arduousness or precariousness of agriculture, a blessing that easily turns to blight. You look um, at this recurring theme of exile, it's very, very strongly placed in the hearts of the Hebrew writers. Um, a lot of scholars believe that these particular books, or at least these parts of the books, were written in part during the exile. And that would make a lot of sense because if you've just been kicked off of your own homeland, you'd be full of passion and um, anger and feeling sad and betrayed and trying to make sense of who you are and God's promises and how God could still be loyal and you would still be kicked out of the land. Um, also, I mean, even if these are older than the exile, th this would be showing literary and historical patterns that are um, – true of the world and, and echo what's written in scripture. Um, I want to read a note here from Alter on whoever finds me, that line there. Her finds me. This and subsequent in the subsequent record of Cain with a wife in the land of Nod 
are a famous inconsistency. Either the writer was assuming knowledge of some other account of human origins involving more than a single founding family, or because the schematic simplicity of the single nuclear family plot impeded narrative development after Cain's banishment, he decided not to bother with consistency. I always wondered about this as a kid whenever I saw it. It was, um, who's Cain so scared of if they're the only humans? Um, here's a note from Walton. Whoever finds me will kill me. Blood feuding between clans is not a foreign concept. In the ancient world, it was typical, typically the business of the clan to avenge the death of one of its members. The concept is presented in biblical law, cities of refuge and the avenger of blood, as well as the ancient Near East. Cain's comment assumes that Abel has an extended family who might seek revenge. All right, we'll continue. My punishment is too great to bear. Now that you have driven me this day from the soil, and I must hide from your presence. He has to hide from God's presence, just like Adam had to hide from the presence. I shall be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain shall suffer sevenfold vengeance. Seven was the Hebrew number of completion. Um you see this in the creation narrative, how all of the cosmos is created within the number seven. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain that whoever found him would not slay him. And Cain went out of the Lord's presence and dwelt in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. Then he became the builder of a city and called the name of the city like his son's name, Enoch. We're going to pause here. There's also a theme we're about to head into going into the rest of the Torah of technology and cities being seen as a little bit more evil and agriculture and herdsmen seeing as a little bit more righteous. Um, and we'll see this even later with, with Lot and, and Abraham and their lifestyles and the way that the heavenly uh, agents are treated by both of these people. Um, so we see Enoch uh, starting a city and we're going to see parallels between this city, Babel and Egypt. I'm going to keep going. Then he became the builder of a city and called the name of the city, like his son's name, Enoch. And Irad was born to Enoch. And Irad be be begot Mehujael and Mehujael begot Methusael and Methusael begot Lamech. Lamech took him two wives. The name of one was Adah and the other was Zillah. And Adah bore Jabal. He was the uh, first of the tent dwellers with livestock. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the first of all who play the lyre and pipe. As for Zillah, she bore two Bulcane, who forged every tool of copper and iron. And the sister of two Bulcane was Nama. And Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, Oh, hearken my voice, you wives of Lamech, give ear to my speech. For I, for a man have I slain for my wound, a boy for my crushing. For sevenfold Cain is revenged, and Lamech seventy-seven. So this guy, um, Lamech, is bragging about how merciless he is. He says that a young man merely hurts him, and he pays them back seventy times seven, or seventy and seven. Um, if you compare this to Jesus in the Gospels, when he's asked how many times you should forgive someone, Jesus responds 70 times 7. He's referencing this story here. 
um, Jesus is trying to push humanity into a new creation that's going to look like the Edenic ideal and not this anti-creation that's being brought about through the seed of Cain and through Lamech. Um, I'm going to read from Alter talking about the narrative context of this poem. The narrative context of this poem is long lost, but it looks like a warrior's triumphal song cast as a boast to his wives. Unlike the loser form of the earlier poetic insets, this poem follows the parallelistic pattern of biblical verse with exemplary rigor. Each term in each, uh, each initial verset has its semantic counterpart in the second verset. In the Hebrew, the first pair of versets has four accented syllables in each. Every subsequent verse has three accented syllables. The last pair of versets with its numbers provide a paradigm case for poetic parallelism in the Bible. When a number occurs in the first half of the line, it must be increased by one, by a decimal, or by a decimal added to the original numbers here in the second half of the line. In the same way, there is a pronounced tendency in the poetry to intensify semantic material it is repeated in approximate synonymity. Perhaps then what Lamech is saying, quite barbarically, is that not only has he killed a man for wounding him, he has not hesitated to kill a mere boy for hurting him. So it's using the um, the number of syllables and the poetic conventions of ancient Hebrew to really emphasize how young this boy is, and how, it was, how easily he could just cause so much damage and, and retribution against this kid. Adam again knew his wife. She bore a son and called his name Seth. As to say, God has granted me other seed in place of Abel, for Cain has killed him. As for Seth, to him, too, a son was born, and he named him Enosh. It was then that the name of the Lord was first invoked. Um, Enosh. I'm going to read a note from Alter on Enosh. The name is also a common noun in Hebrew meaning man, and that uh, I think it's ish to mean man. Uh, and that conceivably might explain why from the universalist perspective of the writer, the name Yahweh began to be invoked in this generation. In any case, the narrative unit that begins with one general term for a human being, Adam, in verse 1, here concludes with another, Enosh. And those two words elsewhere are bracketed together in poetic parallelism. This is his note on the name of the Lord, and then we'll look at Walton. The name of the Lord was first invoked. That is the distinctive Israelite designation for the deity. Yahweh represented in this translation according to the precedent of the King James Version as the Lord. The existence of primordial monotheism is an odd biblical notion that seeks to reinforce the universalism of the monotheistic idea. The enigmatic claim made here with an atypical and vague passive form of the verb is contradicted by the report in Exodus that only with Moses was the name of Yahweh revealed to man. The scholars have wondered about this, about these two verses. Um, and yeah, I mean, I don't really struggle it with, with it this much because to me, it's um, I, I listened to an explanation by Heiser and he talked about um, just like these, these different categories and nomenclature about the name of the Lord. But what is important with this universalist um, theme that's going is if the Bible is only supposed to be something that's written for the people of Israel. Why does the whole story start with a story about the entire world? I mean, think about how odd it would be if 
I was writing my own story of my life and I started it with like the American revolution. Um, if I was going to do that, it seems like I would have to be the sort of person who would somehow impact all of America in some profound way. So <clears throat> piggybacking on that idea, um, these Hebrew scriptures, they're, they're larger than just the people of Israel. And we'll see as it zooms into that within the story of the Bible, but it starts with this wider lens of looking at all of humanity. And that's huge. That's not something that was highly paralleled in other Mesopotamian cultures, this, this universalist, all-encompassing worldview of everyone. Um, here's a note on the name of God from Walton. Personal name Yahweh is used frequently throughout Genesis. The patriarchs address God by that name, and God identifies himself by that name. But a problem surfaces in Exodus. At the, at the burning bush, Moses asks what name he should give for the Lord who's sending him, even though God has already identified himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's Exodus 3, 6 through 13. In Exodus 3.15, the name Yahweh, Lord, is introduced, and it seems to some interpreters that God is giving a new name not previously revealed. The situation is made more confusing in Exodus 6.2-3, where God says to Moses, I am the Lord, Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai, but by my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself fully known to them. Verses such as these have led some to postulate that the occurrence of Yahweh in the patriarchal narratives is simply the work of the editor of Genesis, showing the continuity between the patriarchs and later Israel. The fact that Genesis takes its final form no earlier than the time of Moses has allowed some conservative scholars to be content with viewing the references to Yahweh in the patriarchal narratives as purposeful intrusion. To them, the name of Yahweh was added in appropriate places to affirm that the patriarchs really did worship the same God as the Israelites, though they called him by a different name. This may be acceptable in some cases, but it does not explain the passages in which God is presented as identifying himself as Yahweh. In Exodus 3.13, Moses is not looking to fill an information gap concerning God's identity, but rather is asking which previously known epithet is most appropriate to use. In Exodus 3.15, God explains that the epithet Yahweh, Lord, is the appropriate one. In Exodus 6.3, God explains that El Shaddai, NIV's God Almighty, was the epithet most appropriately connected with how God interacted with the patriarchs and what he accomplished for them. They did not experience firsthand the significance of the epithet Yahweh, which was connected to the longer-term promises of God, specifically the land. In other words, it is not that the patriarchs were ignorant of the name Yahweh, but the epithet El Shaddai was appropriate for the aspects of the covenant they experienced. The name Yahweh was one of the many epithets they used to refer to their God, but it was not the primary one in their usage or understanding. So I think he's saying um, we need to quit like pinning it into these really rigid categories and just say, you know what? He's going to be called um, Yahweh here for theological reasons. And El Shaddai is emphasized with the patriarchs for theological reasons. Um, the name Yahweh means he is. And I think the verb construction there, I, I think it's qual perfect. Um, I'm not sure. I have to brush it from my Hebrew. I believe it's, oh, no, it wouldn't be perfect. It's, it's imperfect because it's, 
It's like he is and he will be. Um, so it's not even like really a name. It's it's like a being verb. Um, okay. Uh, here's Walton's note on calling the name of the Lord. Just as there is no implication that only Cain's line had cities in the arts of civilization, so the text does not imply that the only line of Seth called on the name of the Lord. About a dozen times in the Old Testament, people are said to call on the name of the Lord, generally either calling for help in connection with a ritual or invoking God's presence at a cultic site. Eventually, humans sought to procure the presence of God through establishing cultic places and performing rituals there. There is no indication of these trappings. Thus, it seems that people began to invoke the Lord's presence. The presence was lost after the fall. This verse then represents the beginning of religion. Um, so what are the main takeaways here? Well, you have, you have Cain and Abel reliving the same mistakes as their parents. Um, and a lot of times the mistakes that our parents have made, those are the ones that are most difficult for us to see. Um, we're going to see that theme echoed later on with, um, Abraham having favoritism and then Isaac uh, and then Jacob having favoritism with Joseph and his brothers. And it causes a whole bunch of pain generation after generation. Um, you're also going to see it with um, Abraham lying about Sarah being his sister and his children lying about the same thing with their wives. I think Isaac does that. Um, so that's an important theme to take away. The other is looking at, um, these children of Cain and seeing Tubal Cain and just acknowledging in the biblical narrative at this point, we need to say, yeah, things are getting worse and worse. Um, not only has they, have they all been kicked out of the garden and failed to be imagers of God and in what they did there, it's happening again in another generation. Um, so this isn't just localized to one specific time and place, but this this problem, this crouching evil, this personification of evil, it's this ongoing thing that just seems to be getting more and more powerful. Um, and you can see it lived out and manifested within the ways in which um, Lamech is living his life and the things that motivate him. I mean, the 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 I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. That sounds like the sort of toxic masculinity and that uh, or just like the same. I, I hate to use a term that's just so implanted into the, our current culture, but it is useful here. This idea here. Here's a better way to phrase it. This idea of finding your sense of self importance in the ways in which you're unforgiving to others. You can call it toxic masculinity. You can call it selfishness or whatever you want, but it's still an evil that's prevalent today. And you can see it, it's coming out in, in, in poetry here. You can see this sort of attitude, listen, and listen to it within media, even today, in art, where people will express themselves in a way where they're proud of um, how ruthless they are. Um, and, and from the way that these ambitions and motivations are sculpted into the biblical narrative you can tell that it's portrayed in a way that's counter creation and so we don't want to be like that we want to be imagers of god um 
And that's about it for this one. Uh, on the next one, we're going to be going into, um, we might just skip to uh, chapter six, because chapter five is a huge genealogy that leads up to Noah. I'm going to um, read a little thing about genealogies in the next one, but that should be about it. Thank you so much for stopping by.